listening to Power Athlete Radio. Training for quote-unquote power has become an increasingly sexy adage to strength and conditioning as of late. But as some of you may know, this imperative emphasis to displaying strength dynamically is no new phenomenon. Coaches and researchers have been studying the benefits of power-based training as well as how to increase the performance biomarkers associated with it for quite some time. Our guest today, Dr. Brian Mann, plays an integral part furthering our knowledge of power. Assistant Director of Strength and Conditioning at the University of Missouri, Brian has developed a passion and network of contemporaries whose obsession is performance. With a background in competitive powerlifting and a shit ton of academic research, Dr. Mann has meticulously studied the physiology of speed and strength. Today, he brings you the biology breakdown of what occurs inter- and intramuscularly to accomplish just that. Also, we were thrilled to have on celebrity guest host Matt Vincent to help bump our ratings. Thank you for that, Matt. And without further ado, this is episode 213. Power Athlete Nation, what is up? We have a special guest host with us. We have Matt Vincent, Austin, Texas. We have John Wellborn, Austin, Texas, and myself. Matt, go ahead and introduce yourself. I'm uh, Matt Vincent. I compete in the Scottish Highland Games, and now I'm helping host a podcast. The, no, not a podcast. podcast. The, the premier podcast. The in premier strength podcast for strength and conditioning. conditioning. In strength and conditioning. Nice, I like that. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, it, it's interesting. If you say things over and over again, eventually people start to listen. And you know what? If you Google the premier podcast in strength and conditioning, you know what comes up? Power Out the Radio. Nice. nice. I didn't know that. We have a special guest, and selfishly, I mean, hopefully uh, our pre-talk notes will get, jump up on there, but... uh we have a, a, an awesome guest in terms of uh, velocity-based training and, uh, you know, world-class strength coach and just somebody I've been really actually geeking out, um, you know, following his stuff and excited to get him on and uh, talk, talk about how to necessarily increase speed, increase athleticism and make people better in the weight room and, yep. how, to, and how to gauge it. Pretty exciting stuff. Yes, sir. So, Dr. Brian Mann, would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah. Uh, well, my name obviously is Brian Mann. Uh, I started out in strength and conditioning back in 1999 under a guy named Rick Perry, who's now with the Chicago Bears. Uh, I went to uh, Arizona State under Joe Ken, University of Tulsa under Pat Ivey, back to Missouri State with Rick Perry, and then uh, Pat Ivey got the job at University of Missouri, and I came here in 04, and I've been ever, here ever since. Uh, come 2011, I got my PhD, and... Um, I had a dual role up until recently, and now I'm not no longer an active strength coach. Whenever the transition hit, I wanted to protect my family. And uh, so I'm a professor in the Department of Physical Therapy. I'm the director of research for the athletic department and the director of research for the Human Performance Institute. Uh, also got to uh, do a lot of stuff with the NSCA. I'm the state director for it. Uh, I'm the chair for the College Strength and Conditioning Coaches Group. And, uh, yeah, I helped do a new certification form, the, the lifts course where it's a, it's a hands-on teaching thing. Um, you know, so I've been around the block a little bit. I've worked with, uh, Olympians, world champs, national champs, uh, th that sort of thing. Uh, about, yeah, I, I never spent any time in the, uh, the pro sport league, but I've had many athletes go on, uh, to pro sports. So that's, uh, that's me in a nutshell, I guess, you know, poor, Poor boy from uh, Backwoods, Oklahoma, you know, now a professor. So that's about it. I was going to say, dude, that's a hell of a resume. Yeah, mine's way quicker than that. <laughs> <laughs> I got a general studies degree from LSU. 
There you go. I've actually seen my degree. <laughs> I don't I think it's to my parents' house. I don't think anybody has. Yeah. Oh man. Um, so we yeah. got we got a lot of questions, Brian. So sounds uh, good. Let's get to it. We uh, we Brian and I were talking before the show about compensatory acceleration. I think that's a good lead in because yeah. that's one of our primary uses of velocity based training. So. Uh, Brian, could you kind of introduce us to velocity-based training? So I know there's a set definition, and it may not be a common term for many of our, our listeners. Well, velocity-based training is basically just utilizing, well, it, it's a couple-pronged approach. And, and the first is simply feedback, and you get the feedback of the velocity. And honestly, just simply having the feedback of the velocity causes somebody to have compensatory acceleration whenever you get down to it, because they see the speed, they want to go faster. They get actual uh, concrete feedback. It's not move as fast as you can. It's move over this velocity, and they get that. Uh, you put a score on it, it becomes competitive. Uh, um, then you can utilize the velocity to dictate the load of the barbell. You know, all training is governed by two principles. Uh, regardless of what type of programming you use, if it's undulating, if it's uh, concurrent, if it's, uh, I'm drawing a blank on a bunch of, you know, block, whatever. Oh yeah. Max effort. I mean, you, you know, conjugate system, progressive right. overload. I mean, like right. you said, uh, undulating periodization, uh, you know, classical periodization. I mean, dude, it's. And it's all governed by the same two things. There's the specific adaptations to impose demands or said principle. And then there's progressive overload, which, you know, you, if you want to increase this, the adaptation, you've got to increase the stimulus. So, uh, you know, by utilizing velocity, you are able to use that specific adaptations to impose demands because every trait essentially has a corresponding velocity. Uh, and, it, you know, where we really kind of had everything take off was uh, with Buddy Morris and Tom Maslinski were a couple of my mentors. Sure. And uh, they introduced me to what they called the uh, strength continuum. And uh, it was from Bosco and Bosco's um, main uh, opponent isn't the right word, but the guy that, you know, kind of uh, one of his contemporaries uh, that they would go at each other quite a bit. But that's how uh, how people get better. Right. Iron sharpens iron man sharpens man. Uh, there was that strength continuum when it said it was zero to 15 percent was um, non-trainable. Right. You, it was blessed by the hand of God. 15 to 40 was starting strength. 40 to 60 was non-quantifiable, and it was non-quantifiable not because nothing happened, but because there was such a crossover of so many different traits. 60 to 80% was accelerative strength, and 80-plus percent was absolute strength. And then whenever we started looking at the velocities for the big rock exercises, that's where the zones came from. It's like, holy cow, we're within 5 6% of uh, the bench press and the squat being the same velocity. So let's just rock and roll here, bench squat and deadlift. You know, why did, uh, why did we choose those exercises? Well, I think we all came from a powerlifting background. So, you know, that's why we, we chose those exercises. Are they necessarily the best? Well, no, uh, it, you know, there's other exercises that could have a greater transfer. Some people like front squat, some people like overhead squat, some people like Zercher squat. You know, some people, you know, they've got their different methods. And the or we have like a Bulgarian squat. Like, uh, who, who's, uh, who do we have on that told us that bilateral hinging was worthless? Um, Boy, oh, yeah. He yeah. Yeah. He so, didn't say worthless. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I'm paraphrasing. It no. It never worked. But we had Mike Boyle on who made an interesting point that he said, you know, he was working with so many guys that were so injured 
that just basically doing some form of bilateral hinging wasn't necessarily useful for them anymore. But with his, his youth athletes, they began with a goblet squat. So yes. They began with the bilateral. And then they progressed into a unilateral. So people yes. became more advanced. Or broken. Well, no, well, I mean, you know, and you know this. I mean, do, do you remember when uh, the Russians were doing all, you know, were kicking ass and all the Americans were trying to figure out why? And then they put out, I, I think it was a ruse, they put out that uh, uh, Pisarenko wouldn't squat. He was all he was doing was these like massive like step ups. You remember that? Now, uh, yeah, I do remember that. Um, yeah, and they were putting out like he was doing like he, you know, the, none of the high level Russians were squatting anymore. They were only doing uh, really heavy step ups. And then all the Americans tried to do it, but the Russians were lying to him because they were there was a bunch of, of stuff in the training halls because they went and they were all back squatting. So a spy game for strength. <laughs> Star like Wars. It. Yeah, pretty close. Oh, pretty close. That's right. That's right. Uh, but uh, like that. I mean, and, and not to get this off the rails because I do that so often, but I mean, have, uh, is there a way to test velocity for like, for example, like a Bulgarian split squat? Could you do it meaningful with like unilateral type movements? Yeah. You know, uh, you can actually do that with anything, with any movement that you do in the weight room. If you can attach something to it to measure the velocity, you can, uh, alter the load by it. And, uh, especially if you're trying to do it for power with a compensatory acceleration, you know, if, if you want to look at it from that lens in that basically you just take the technique uh, make sure that the athlete's technique is solid and then just take them up and low and we'll, you know, all the devices give, uh, all the devices that I'm aware of will give you power, right? Whenever you sure. find peak power, that's the velocity at which you should be training. If you're trying to hit that compensatory acceleration. Uh, and then, so, you know, you can watch the load change from there. Uh, I've seen people do it with Bulgarian split squats. Now it gets a little, a little tricky on things like that because balance comes into play and was that rep and power super fast because you're falling over to the left or was it you know because you were rock solid and you know, flying on up so it yeah i mean and it's probably easier to compare people in terms of like uh you know just basic bilateral type movements like a you know a, a squat a bench and a deadlift because i mean not only are those universally done i mean i've seen people do some sing some unilateral single jointed or sorry unilateral movements where i think oh my god that doesn't look like anything i've ever seen so right. I think, uh, you know, just in terms of standardizing. Um, so basically you guys went back and you noticed that there was different zones in velocity. Uh, yeah. Can we go through, like, like we, we mentioned those, but I mean, is there directly like, uh, you know, this percentage, this speed directly attacks this, you know, like you said, specific, specific adaptation to impose demands? Absolutely. You know, for like muscle, for fiber type. I mean, because we, we run into people all the time that are like, oh, I need to get faster. Uh, and to get faster, all they have to do is get stronger. Um, I have people that are, you know, want to get stronger. And by actually dropping their body fat or necessarily increasing the you know, cross-sectional size of a muscle, they can increase strength. I mean, there's a million different ways to attack it. And, right. I, you know, I'm sure there's a million different factors that you can throw into this. It's really a tweak based on each individual, correct? Yeah, you know, you're right. Uh, whenever, if we... I'll step back and go with the, the overarching view with how everything interrelates from a physiological standpoint and then go back in on the velocity. We got to realize that they're the muscle fiber, right? That's called a, you know, whenever we're producing force, we've got two components. We've got a series elastic component and we've got a parallel elastic component. And the series elastic component is essentially the muscle, the muscle itself, right? The muscle fibers and how the sarcomeres line up in a series. Well, how, to improve force from that, we've got four main ways. Two or more uh, on the, the muscle fiber itself side, and two of them are on the neural aspect of it. And they all will get affected from training. 
And the first is uh, just let's look at one of the myofibrillar, right? So if you, you there's some different things you can do the myofibril itself, you know, the actin, the myosin, right? And uh, I guess just to because I'm jumping ahead, you know, we've got that sliding filament theory where the myosin pulls the actin filament across of it. That's what causes the shortening for the contraction that causes movement, right? So what we want to make sure that we do is get that myosin as big and as strong as we can. Uh, and then uh, the we can look at it individually like the myosin head and how it can withstand forces and, you know, using like eccentrics and stuff like that's part of how uh, Caldita's triphasic works is through the tissue remodeling through that. Uh, then also within the myofibril, if you increase the cross-sectional area of it, you can change the angle of pination. Okay? And that just means how does that muscle come in into the tendon and what sort of angle does it come? The more... Um, perpendicular that it comes in, the more force that it can produce uh, because of just angle, line of pull. Wow. So the larger a muscle, the more force it can generate just yeah. based off of the angles. Wow. Right. But, but structural. So yeah. Structural. I mean, because so we- Functional tissue mass versus sarcoplasmic. Well, we've always known that the larger cross-sectional size of a muscle will theoretically produce more force. Right. And I always thought that it was just more the idea that there was more available motor units, more trained. I mean, if you're increasing cross-sectional size, you're obviously doing something to do it, which, but I mean, angle of pination is pretty interesting. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the cross-sectional area, of course it does. You're probably not increasing the motor unit, but you're increasing the size of each myofiber within the motor unit. Uh, Cause you're not going to lay down new neurons or something like that. You know, Have we thing. figured out how to do that yet? Yeah, you know what? If we do, we're going to be some rich people. But uh, genetic engineering—that's <laughs> where it's going to be. I—I uh, uh, I just spoke at uh, Summer Strong and uh, had the opportunity to, to connect with Cal Dietz, who uh, was another kindred spirit. And uh, you know, we connected and uh, uh, you know got to talk for a couple hours. And I was busting his balls about um, you know he wrote a book that was you know basically claiming like he invented accentuated negatives, and he just <laughs> laughed. And I was like, "Come on, dude!" And he's like. <laughs> He's like, you wouldn't believe I told, I accused him of being like a, like T nation, just recycling old stuff. And, uh, just funny dude, but I mean, such a sharp dude and, uh, really enjoyed what, you know, he was talking about, but, uh, and I actually talked about that. I'm like, have we figured out a way to add more motor units? Have we figured out how to increase this stuff from uh, that point? And he said the same thing. He's like, we're looking, but when we find out, we'll be rich. So, <laughs> yeah, I always say Cal's my brother from another mother, man. The first time that we met, we were uh, cracking jokes and finishing each other's sentence in the first like five minutes. Yeah. He, uh, um, you know, uh, like, like we were talking earlier, you know, we had, uh, my Derek Hansen yesterday with the EMS, which I've always been a big user of. And so I started talking to Cal a bit about it and he had run in the same problem I have that somebody didn't have a unit that was able to do what he wanted in terms of technology and, uh, kind of hardware and software. And so when I gave it to him and showed him, he was like, Oh man. And you know, he's been sending me these emails and I'm like, dude, we'll jailbreak this thing and do whatever you want. And he's Hell like, dude, yeah. that's what I like to hear. And so uh, he's like, I got about 18 different protocols that I want to try. I just have never had a unit that could do it. And uh, that dude's, a, you know, like yourself, like a high-level thinker who is trying to solve some really complex problems in some unique ways. Yeah. Yeah, he absolutely is. Uh, you're done with the myofibril, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's get to the neural side. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, so, well, we got one more on the – let's go with the other one on the muscle side. And that's okay. going to be the sarcoplasmic reticulum. And if you go back to the physiology book, we remember that the sarcoplasmic reticulum's responsibility is the release and reabsorption of calcium. Okay. Now, why that's important is because the calcium, I was mess, I, I, I'm not a physiology guy. I, I'm just playing one on TV right now. Uh, but the calcium 
unlocks the tropomyosin, which unlocks the troponin to give an active binding site for on the actin for the myosin to grab a hold of. So the faster you can absorb, uh, release and absorb calcium, the faster you're going to be able to achieve muscle contraction. Okay? So that's a, another way that you have to improve to increase force. Now a third. Now let's get over the neural side, and then we've got uh, Hinneman's size principle. Right. And Hinneman's size principle basically is, you know, you've got your low threshold to your high threshold motor units. And you typically start in type one and this type two high threshold unit motor units pretty much like blocked off and you got to jailbreak it. Right. And uh, if you lift heavy loads, the Golgi tendon organ learns that, hey, the, you know what, this is safe. I'm not going to get blown up or anything. And uh, all of a sudden that door kind of comes open and it, that, that barrier comes lower and lower and lower that you don't have to go as hard to get into those high threshold motor units, right? Essentially. Wow. So, wow, that's interesting. So the idea is that as you train more, not only is it kind of a, the body's defense mechanism kind of um, almost, uh, you know, down regulating in a way to allow you to be able to get into places you can't. I mean, we always talk about uh, beginners not having an efficient central nervous system. You know, that's why, you know, we've always fought against beginners doing singles, you know, to necessarily yeah. have a meaningful one rep max. You have to have, uh, you know, not only, you know, inter and intramuscular coordination, but you also have an efficient CNS opportunity to have done enough reps to really be able to get the body to work in co you know, cohesion or, uh, right. um, and it's kind of, uh, that's another interesting point that yeah. I hadn't really thought about. Dr. Mann, does this kind of explain, I don't know if you've ever um, introduced new movements, kind of skips or kind of drills to track folks and you see tension in their hands. We're just kind of doing relaxed skips or any ankle work and unnecessary tension. Is that kind of a overreaction of the Golgi tendon or am I? You know, I'm, to be, I'll be completely honest with you. I'm not sure. Yeah. I've uh, always wondered this just kind of at an observation and teaching athletes new skills that are our course well right. uh, the thing that i found is that um it's easier and i know this sounds like uh, almost like crazy talk but uh it's easier to teach people things that are readily able to learn new skills so i, I always went back this on football and i remember when i was pretty young uh, my brother would come home every summer to work and he played college football so then i was his training partner and I remember for the first couple of days he got home, he got a couple of my buddies who were also playing football to go out. And after about four or five days, none of them showed up anymore. And the reason being was they got tired of learning the same movements because he's like, well, if we can't learn how to take a zone step, we can't learn anything else. And so after spending three days, like an hour straight of just teaching these kids to zone step and not one of them could ever get their zone step, they just didn't come back. And I remember asking my brother, I'm like, he's like, dude, uh, I can't teach them anything else until they learn the first step. And if they can't learn it, he's like, there's, you know, and I'm like, well, but I learned it in the first two or three minutes. And he was like, hence the different in athletes. Right. And he's like, he's like, you have the ability to learn new skills. And if I teach you something, I don't have to go back and reteach you and remind you because then we can progress through. And I remember even just that rudimentary thing, like thinking about, uh, you know, central nervous system efficiency training volume. I mean, are you able to learn new skills? And when the people that are able to learn new skills are probably able to learn more and more. And we learned that at our seminar, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if people are not forced outside of their comfort zone and taught new skills, then they effectively lose the ability to learn other new skills, skills which is, you know, we, we've had this rare distinction to, uh, travel the world almost over the last decade and teach hundreds of seminars around the globe, trying to teach an athletic form of training to people that are really steeped in, uh, you know, the CrossFit stuff, which is basically sagittal plane bilateral hip hinging over and over again. 
and um, everything can be done in the doorway in a hallway, everything straight ahead, you know, no rotation, no, no lateral movement. I mean, no, uh, no transverse plane, um, you know, very, you know, very, very rare amount of, uh, you know, unilateral movements. And what was interesting is seeing people do these, these forms of training um, that are predicated really on submaximal efforts, you know, with a emotional quotient of high intensity, which is in our definition of high intensity, uh, people all kind of had the same similar problems over and over again. And it just, you know, after a while you see it and you just know what to expect because people are a product of what they do. And, uh, I mean, like, I'm sure you, you know, I mean, you can look at certain athletes and you can see a remarkable difference in physique. Some people that lift heavy weights over 85% and people that lift, you know, 60 to 85%. I can look at somebody and know whether or not they lift heavy weights or not just right. because of the, you know, and I used to do this in football. Uh, when I walked up to the line, I had a few seconds to assess a guy and I could tell who had put in the time doing the shit that nobody likes to do. You know, all of a sudden you see a guy with a big ass, big hamstrings, big back, opposed from the dude that looks like, you know, big chest, big quads, million dollar, you know, looks like a pro bodybuilder. Yeah. And uh, then all of a sudden you see the dude turn to the side and he looks like a racehorse and you think to yourself, fuck, this dude's going to crush me. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, uh, it kind of, you know, like it's like we say, it be, you become a byproduct of what you do. And form, form falls, falls function. function. Yeah. Shit, said principle. Damn. Okay, sorry, sorry. I, I don't mean to cut you off, dude. It's all good. It's all good. Did, uh, what we were on Hinneman size principle. We yep. get that one knocked out. Yep. Last one is going to be rate coding, which uh, you kind of alluded to whenever you're talking about the uh, the inter and intramuscular coordination. And it's whenever you get back down to the the lowest level, it is uh, you know the the nervous system sends down electrical impulse that causes a muscle to twitch. And then uh, the faster that and more efficient that your nervous system is sending down signals, it turns from single twitch to multiple twitch to unfused tetanus to fused tetanus as somebody goes along and gets better. And that's part of the, uh, you know, somebody starting out looking like a baby deer and then end up you know, being able to sprint pretty well uh, doing new drills or new exercises. Uh, then so with the uh, rate coding, it's just, the speed and the efficiency of which it comes down to the individual muscle cell within the muscle fibers within the muscle group and then between muscle groups. And that's really where like uh, the, the velocity based training and the uh, ballistics and those sorts of exercises, that's where they really affect things. So you've really got to have a balance among the, the four. So um, within that said principle, uh, we can use velocity to work on several things. It's the most efficient at improving power, but we can absolutely look at it to do like the uh, absolute strength. If we're wanting to look at uh, 0.5 meters per second and below, uh, we can look at it to develop accelerative strength, and that's 0.5 to 0.75 meters per second. We can look at it to develop strength speed, which is strength and conditions of speed. It's the, uh, the, the lower half of the power uh, curve, and that's 0.75 to 1.0 meters per second. Then we've got uh, speed strength, which is about one to about 1.3. It's probably really like one and a quarter, but you know, you, a lot of times the bar is going to pop up a little bit, and that's going to increase the range of motion that increases the velocity uh, for speed strength. And anything above that, uh, I calculate as starting strength, and that's on the uh, on the individual motions. Now, I guess I need to go back and uh, describe because there's a lot of uh, misunderstandings. And I put out some articles on on these for the nomenclature. I, I took the uh, Soviet nomenclature. Why? Because if Verhoshansky, Medvedev, Ajan, and 
Roman were talking about this, and uh, I don't know if I said Yuri or not yet. I haven't had enough caffeine today, I guess. Uh, if well, that's, all, uh, that's unacceptable. Yeah, it, it very well is. Yeah, it I very mean, well is. I thought I had a whole box of caffeine packets back there, and it was empty. I, and I don't know if somebody ripped me off or if I just hadn't been paying attention. How many kids do you have? I've just got one right okay. now. She's 20 months old and she is running me ragged. Okay. I was going to say, I got three kids. I got a little boy who's about 14 months and I got two almost six year olds, twin girls. And, uh, I probably drink like six double espressos before six 30 in the morning. Yeah. And so like, I'm, you know, my little boy's teething. So I'm up pretty early and I just start pounding that stuff. And then I, when these guys come to the podcast, they're like, dude, you're so wound up. I'm like, I've been up since like 5am drinking coffee. Are you kidding me? I got like 10 cups in there. <laughs> <laughs> So Tex doesn't have any kids. He's unmarried. He's probably just, you know, waking up like a you know baby doe, just waking up, stretching his neck, just waiting Great. for you to get weird. I feel like a million bucks. Great. You son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> I'm all half broken and full of caffeine. It's great. <laughs> Whenever you have a cut, it just, you know, it comes out looking like caffeine powder, you know. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the, uh, the traits, so when, having to go back to the nomenclature, yeah. uh, starting strength right? That is the ability to rapidly overcome inertia and start from a dead stop. Uh, so think about the, uh, if the defensive back is given a couple of yards as the receiver flying off the ball, going as fast as he can, trying to blow by him. Then uh, accelerative strength. That's one that's often misunderstood. And that is the ability to accelerate through a load. Everybody for some reason thinks that it's accelerating like sprinting down a track. That's not it. It's accelerating through a load. So think about the offensive lineman and defensive lineman firing off against each other. I, I always uh, call that one torque. So I always imagine like uh, like speed, especially when I, th I think about things in terms of trucks and cars. But uh, horsepower is your ability to get through the wall. Torque was the idea of like how much power can I actually take through the brick wall. Yeah. Like squatting with bands or chains. Or something well, yeah, like I mean, that. but uh, like for football, I always thought um, and what kind of gave me this uh, this kind of like way to explain it to people because in football it's kind of interesting you have guys at different interle uh, intellectual levels you know you could talk like with brian and then you could have another dude where you're like okay think about it like this bro how fast you can move your hands from point a to point b is speed yeah that's right when i get to b and i have to go through the dude's Crayons. chest and try to break his fucking sternum and stop his heart where i get to be the c on the back side of his back that is torque so like Speed is important, but my power and my strength to get through him and basically stop his heart like a, um, you know, Mortal Kombat style, that's torque. And, um, I'm more of a friendly conversation with his body and hope that we can <laughs> agree in, for him not to get past In me. football, the idea where I used to watch guys that had pretty good punches and were pretty quick, but they couldn't seem to reset a defender. And like in football, as an offensive lineman, as you set, the, you know, that guy's on his trajectory, my ability to punch him and then make him reset, take a step and get him outside like Dick you know, dictate something against him, use my power through. And that was what I always said, you know, you got to have fast hands and have speed, but you have to have enough like power and torque to be able to reset and force your will upon him. And you can use your head, you can use your hands. I mean, some guys were big punch guys. And then other dudes just fucking held on for dear life and just hope they wouldn't get fucking ragdolled. So that's actually interesting as uh, I've not heard it explained as accelerated strength. And what's kind of neat is there's actually a very certain uh, time domain based off of the yeah. velocity based training that we can use to adapt this. Now, yeah. an interesting thing along those lines is that uh, I have, I'm 
I, I admittedly am not the, the sharpest tool in the shed, but I make sure to reach out to people who are. And we've got a bioengineer in our department, and I had him hook up uh, and video analysis with the offensive lineman, defensive lineman on the boards. And whenever the guy was blowing through somebody, like, you know, the, you know right on – you know what I'm talking about on the boards. I don't know what the yeah. name of the drill is other well, than the boards. Well, yeah, let me explain it. There's uh, – what they do is it's usually about a 2-by-8 uh, or 2-by-6 or 2-by-10, depending on what the coaches are. And back in the day, they actually used to be wooden boards. And then some equipment maker figured out that if we made them out of rubber, then when people stepped on them, they wouldn't fall and fucking bust their ass. Yeah, we but, had the wooden ones in high school. The problem became that the, the, the training tool of the board was if they were slick fucking wood and you stepped on it, you got your ass beat. <laughs> right. So like I remember when all of a sudden they brought out these rubber ones and I thought to myself, well, dude, this isn't going to work the same way. Cause yeah, normally, no punishment here. Well, yeah. I mean, what I would try to do is I would try to lift the dude up and as soon as I got him up on his toes, instantly his feet would come together. He would step on the board, at which point I could accelerate one way and then fucking pancake the dude. And to the point where I was like, I, you know, and I understood leverages enough to be like, all I got to get this dude to do is fucking pirouette his feet and he's done. And then when the rubber came in, it didn't really matter as much. So, mm. but that's what the boards are. So, okay. So whenever uh, the, like I say, the offensive line was dominating the defensive line and I had him on roller skates, he was moving at about 0.6 meters per second. Well, you look at that, that's right halfway in that 0.5 to 0.75, which was just like a, yes, I was right moment. Uh, that it was accelerative strength. Uh, so, you know, that, that's, uh, that, that is what it is right there. Uh, and those are usually the two that are most commonly misconstrued, but then there's the strength speed and the speed strength, and people used to have those as completely interchangeable, and they're not. And research has come out by a guy named uh, Jundaka, and I'm, I'm sure I butchered his name, uh, that he basically found the same thing as Robert Roman with the strength speed and the speed strength, except for he called it load velocity and velocity load. And that 0.75 to 1.0 was one thing and 1.0 to one and a quarter was the other. Wow. Cool. Doctor, does, uh, how does a novice athlete play into this? So when uh, we talk about speed and then inter and intra, they need that opportunity to kind of learn the movement pattern. It does mm -hmm. speed come after that time frame, or do you it want does. to talking speed first? Okay. No, no, you've got to learn the technique first, and that's one of the. Uh, sometimes you you find out you've had unintended consequences to things that you've done, and uh, one of the unintended unintended consequences that's happened as a result of velocity based training is that sometimes form has gone to shit. Mm -hmm. And people are only trying to move the barbell or whatever as fast as they can, and they forget how they're supposed to move it. So um, in my book, right, I've got a, a figure of my workouts, right? One of my workouts for a shot putter, and it was going into a power phase. And on that workout, I had three exercises out of the entire four-day training week that were utilizing velocity. I had two more exercises that I would eventually start to use velocity on. And those two exercises, the only reason why I wasn't doing it yet is because their form still sucked. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we were doing a split jerk, and it was just seemed to be too technical. They were having a hard time uh, figuring out how to split their feet. Uh, or maybe it's walking, gum and chewing, uh, walking and chewing gum at the same time. Not sure wh which one it might have been. But, uh, you know, they were having a hard time with that, and they were having a hard time with the snatch. 
So instead of having the feedback or the velocity to worry about, all I want them to worry about is the technique, right? Um, you know, you can do other more simple exercises uh, to be able to do things to get some of the same traits out of the rate coding like you would out of the velocity, right? So you can't jump slow, right? right? I've never seen a slow box jump. Okay? Well, I have, but it usually <laughs> in, uh, resulted in people with fucking dented shins and a uh, trip to the emergency room. Fair enough. Fair, fair point there. So uh, we basically don't worry about the velocity stuff with novice athletes until no, master no. a little bit of mastery. But I mean, movement. well, yeah, I mean, it's mastery of movement, it's technique, but it's also like we talked about, I mean, to effectively do these things, you have to have a trained, efficient central nervous system sure. to get everything to fire. And the one thing right. that we've found is that as a, as an amateur or a beginner, that's they don't have that and you know yeah, what what's weird is uh right is people are upset about that i'm like why you didn't earn it yet yeah well that and and also i mean we we use just a uh, a basic uh just kind of linear progression with our beginners and uh you know and i don't care where they start because eventually we'd keep adding load to the bar or bar to sorry load to the bar eventually it will get heavy enough right that we can sneak in and you know get some other neat things going but uh, it's pretty amazing how quickly people want to jump past where they are in their training. And um, I think what uh, was, uh, at least for me, when I retired from the NFL and I got approached about CrossFit about helping you know develop some sports-specific stuff and I showed them some programming, what blew their minds was uh, I had one program for somebody day one and I had a program for somebody that was uh, you know an advanced athlete yeah. and, and somebody in the middle. And I remember people asked me, what did I do for my training? And I remember being like, well, I can tell you what I did for my training, but if you do my training, you're not going to get the same effect. And they were like, what do you right. mean? And I'm like, well, dude, uh, my level of adaptation and the amount of stuff that I've done is so much more than you. Why would you think that you could just jump into this stuff? And why would you even think you would want to? And like, right. that was what kind of drives me crazy, especially when I see people, uh, you know, selling programs or this guy do that. And I'm like, dude, uh, we're all, even though we're all same decaying matter, we all have a different level of adaptation and exposure, different opportunity, different genetics, geography, whatever you want to go into. And uh, you have to start the path at your point and then progress it this way. You can't jump in on anybody else's journey. And um, like, for example, we're doing a bunch of, um, you know, when we do, we, we do our uh, velocity-based stuff, I call it just compensatory acceleration cat training. So we were doing cat squats today on, uh, on one of our programs. And a guy literally, as I was driving over, sent me his numbers. And uh, I think he was doing, you know, five sets of five. And his first set was at like 0.85 meters per second on all five reps. And he was pretty consistent. I think his slowest was like 0.83. And then all of a sudden he was resting 90 seconds. And by the fifth set, he was at like 0.4. Oof. Oh, wow. And he, he was like, oh, I, I felt really slow on the last part. Why do you think this was? And I'm like, because probably you're fucking out of shape. Or, yeah. or you didn't rest long enough. That 90 seconds that I, that I recommended is assuming that you have created enough base level conditioning Man, where you can start. Seconds. Yeah, you can handle it. Like that was what we talked about yesterday with, uh, with Derek Hansen. We were talking about some of the problems that we run into with NFL teams. And for me with my own training, um, I didn't train in the off season with any of the teams uh, because I didn't like um, one for me to do well. I needed to be able to do more uh, high, like um, uh, high intensity in terms of like maximal efforts in terms of things. Like I rather run out and, you know, sprint 40, you know, do 10 forties that are, you know, within 90% or 90% of my fastest time and with two or three minutes rest, and do that type of conditioning because for me playing football that was more beneficial than me going out and running you know uh, you know ten half gassers, 
And, right. uh, you know, when I looked at the training that a lot of the teams were doing, especially when I played at the Eagles and whatnot, I was like, man, this is too many submaximal efforts and your version of conditioning is different than what I want to do. I want to be able to, which kind of goes back to the Charlie Francis stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and then all of a sudden I would show up and they would be like, Hey, you know, this guy went to every conditioning. You didn't show up to any of them. And I'd be like, no problem. Let's go test. And I would win every test and I would win the conditioning test. I would win everything and then go in and play. And, uh, they, and I'd be like, you know, how is it I'm winning all this if these guys are kicking ass in the off season and nothing against those coaches. Cause they were good coaches. I just don't think that the problem is, is when you paint everybody with a broad brush, you're going to miss somebody. And I knew that what they were doing wasn't, you know, allowing me to be what I wanted to do. So, I mean, just kind of an interesting observation and it's just, uh, the velocity stuff that you're talking about is for almost a very specific population of kind of a, you know, a intermediate to advanced kind of that upper echelon. And I think, most people, and you can comment on this much better than I can, most of the people out there training with barbells don't fall within that category. No, of course. No. I mean, like just, you know, on your observation, I mean, you know, you're in a university, you're probably dragging kids in off the street, you know, for doing different tests or training athletes to do different things. How many people have you run into that fit within almost the, uh, you know, sweet spot of where you want to do velocity-based training? You know, uh, I don't really go get kids off the street. I'm just going to research the athletes because I don't care about novice adaptations. <laughs> you know, I care about. I always uh, kind of imagine like kids walking by and you being like, hey, you want to make 20 bucks? I'm going to nice. fucking set you on fire in the next 20 minutes. Get in here. <laughs> but no. I've never understood why people think strength training or lifting is any different than, say, learning how to ski or like learning how to ride a mountain bike. Like, you don't get the downhill day one. Like, I've been riding for 10 years. Well, I have a different but, set. But I mean, Google. if you think about yeah. this, and, and this is kind of the uh, interesting internet age, and, you know, um, like we all have social media, and so you see, like, you know, the dude who's basically on every drug on the universe, but yet he's holding up and he's like, this is my protein. And, my, right. and, and, if, you, and yeah. if, if you do my training program, like, uh, you know, like I was, uh, you know, who, like uh, Michael Hearn, for example, I was watching some stuff with him. I mean, the dude's 46 years old he is absolutely fucking shredded. Yeah. He looks great. I mean, looks like a million dollars. Yeah, I mean, like, holy shit, that dude shredded. And I'm thinking to myself, like the amount of time and effort and work that it takes to not only have that tan or to have that good a hair is far outside of what I have available for myself, having three kids and a wife or willing to do. Well, I mean, I just don't have that many hours. Like his right. hair is amazing. Um, so like, that's part of the thing I go back with is like, uh, how do we, you know, and, and you don't deal with this because you've basically, you know, skewed yourself and said, hey, man, I'm going to just stick in academia where I can deal with what I want to deal with. Yeah. You don't have to fucking slug it out with the masses like we do. <laughs> uh, but like, plebs. I like what I've really and, you know, power athletes based on this idea of battle the bullshit. Like, I'm going to give you the straight fucking answer whether or not it you know, results in you feeling bad or me feeling good or you buying anything. I don't give a shit. I want you to have the truth. And then based off of that good you know, hopefully truthful information, you can assess and make a, a, a valid decision without, you know, stuff. So I'm trying to figure out like how you explain to people or almost put like a set of protocols together to show people that you are not at the point at which velocity-based training would be beneficial to you. So, I mean, that's something that I really work for too, is people are like, well, hey, I, I got a caller. Uh, I got this. I'm, I'm uh, a Tendo. I'm going with this. Why are these numbers? Like, I, I, do you know what I'm saying? Like, how do we... Yeah, no. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you're saying. So one of the things that we did was, well, you know, people call me the VBT guy and, you know, they earned or unearned, that, that, that's what it is. But really what I was, uh, 
what I am is the transfer guy. And, uh, you know, what I say, I'm the transfer guy. That's what always been my goal was how to get the most transfer training. And uh, we in, implemented a level system. And, you know, basically you came in, you learned technique. After you uh, proved that you learned technique, we worked on more absolute, well, more base level strength stuff. So that's 65 to 85%, really looking at basically like the APRE 6. Uh, and then after that, we were looking at uh, some absolute strength, like a prolipin, and we would start to add in a little bit of velocity. And then whenever we got to the fourth level, it was uh, specific traits and uh, tons of velocity. So, you know, we just had to, you had to earn your way up. Now, how did they really earn their way up to getting velocity? Well, basically it was that one of the things that we did was we calculated uh, power from vertical jump, which is just uh, a simple equation. So if you've got body weight and jump height, we can estimate peak anaerobic power in watts. Uh, there's several different equations to use, but I like the uh, Sears equation because uh, his door is not too far from mine. We've <laughs> published together, and I would be a major asshole if I didn't go ahead and use his, use his equation. Uh, but that's how we did it with football. It's like, okay, is your power going up? Okay, oh, okay, well, your power isn't going up. Well, then we need to you know, change the stimulus. And honestly, one of the criteria ended up being about a, a double body weight squat. Uh, to say that was the actual criteria, but no, that wasn't it. But that's, that's whenever it, it, the wheels started falling off, that they weren't getting any more powerful, uh, that they just needed to get stronger up until that point. You know, that, uh, I, I read that almost exact point, and that's always kind of been our uh, benchmark for whether or not people are ready to start more advanced training is the double body weight, because that was yeah. uh, what the Russians talked about, people being able to do high-level plyometrics, you know, Verkashansky with the depth jumps and some of the more, uh, you know, dynamic type things that they were strong enough to protect themselves. And I always remember that, and, you know, Verkashansky has a, uh, a forms which is still active, which is pretty cool that even since he's passed, they still leave it up, and you can go search some things in there, which I'm sure you have where you yeah. do a search and it pops up. And he made that interesting point to a guy that uh, the guy was talking about, you know, more advanced training. And he said, I need people to be strong enough to protect themselves to survive the training. And like yeah. that, that little piece was, uh, was so, um, you know, I mean, it was just like a small piece, but was so impactful for me thinking about, are you strong enough to survive and protect your body to be able to go out and do these things? And then, you know, but people look at things and they're like, well, hey, we'll try to do the most extreme shit when in actuality, they're not strong enough, stable enough. They don't understand, uh, you know, stability, function, movement, technique, all these other key factors to effectively protect themselves from what they're attempting to do. Right. Um, yeah, we found that same with a double body weight. So that's awesome. You know, interesting sidebar there that uh, I just got done editing uh, Yuri's uh, newest book um, that was finished by his daughter, Natalia, on the shock method. and goes into great detail about uh, everything going on with the uh, the depth jump and the other exercises within the shock method. So it'll be, uh, hopefully it'll be out by, you know, July, about the time that the national conference is. Awesome. But, we'll, we'll it'll be through Ultimate there. Athlete Concept and everything. It's, uh, it's man, it, it is fantastic. It his, is uh, the book that they released a couple of years ago, his special training population book. Uh, special strength training or something like that. Yeah. So they, they released that one and there was a hypertrophy program in the back of that, that, uh, was, 
so impactful. I remember I, I copied it out and I remember, you know, put it in spreadsheets and started looking at it and thought like, man, uh, I can't administer this to anybody because, you know, you gotta be pretty high level, but I could steal some things from it. And so right. I went back and I created some interesting, uh, points about how he does his micro dosing and, you know, the micro cycles with the macro and the whole deal. And, uh, I remember that like one program we ended up using and uh, it was as if people were growing like weeds. And to this day, like I have one of the guys that, that I sent the program to, I'll still get emails from people asking, hey, can you send me that program that so-and-so did because he still talks about it and he still uses it. And, uh, and I think I told him, I was like, and he, I think he bought the book and he still didn't understand where I got it all. But uh, I mean, you know, it's all different to everybody. But um, no, Verkashansky's stuff, I mean, and um, uh, it's pretty interesting because, you know, Louis references him at great length. But, uh, you know, Louis was looking at, or the West Side is looking at a kind of a concurrent template where they were trying to, you know, train everything at once, where Verkashansky was very set on like, you know, we're going to develop, the, yeah, we're going to develop these pieces. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, we still argue with people all the time on concurrent training models versus, you know, doing some form of block periodization. Yeah, you know, I actually go concurrent before I go conjugate. Uh, uh, con conjugate as Yuri talks about it. Sure. So concurrent is what. Uh, you know, the, what I'm considering West side style, even though Louis calls it the conjugate method, it's not looking yeah. at the definitions. I, I look at it as a, a concurrent method, nothing against Louis. And if he listens to this, I'm probably going to get a, a nasty phone call about that. But you know, uh, that's just the way that, uh, you know, the, that I look at it based off of the nomenclature that Yuri and Mel and those others have put out. Well, they, uh, you know, they were talking about the, the conjugate method or he's talking about the conjugate method in terms of rotating movements in terms of, uh, you know, the law of accommodation. So we're going to, yeah. you know, keep changing bars, for example, whereas uh, it's way more in depth than just rotating different implements. Yeah. And you, you look at it, it's, uh, it comes back to the sport too. I mean, with powerlifting, that is the sport. So, you know, there you go. But whenever you're dealing with uh, team sports that have got to develop anything other than just the single trait, then we've got other things that we've got to look at. So this is, uh, this is something that piques my interest, and I want to stick uh, with this topic of transfer training mm -hmm. and working with sports versus uh, a, a strength sport uh, or a power sport. So uh, one line you dropped when I listened to you speak at the NSCA conference back in January was causation versus correlation. Yeah. And you talk about the vertical jump test is something you use to see if the training is working. <laughs> what other yeah. tests can coaches do uh, or do we have to rely on the games? Do we have to rely on the track events to see if the training is working? What else can our coaches take away to try to implement to see if their application is crossing over to the competition? Excellent question. And one of the areas that we've got to have is key performance indicators for, for different sports, right? For track and field, for swimming, it's easy, right? All you have to do is you know the distance that they ran, you know, uh, you know, any, the, how far they threw, how far they jumped. That, that's super easy. But the other team sports is where it gets a little interesting. And you've got to have different things to be able to look at other than the sport. Because in team sport, I can't account for how good the other person is, right? Mm -hmm. So if you've got different things that, uh, that the athlete that has been found to be uh, related to success of the athlete, like uh, maybe for an offensive defensive lineman, it's 10-meter time. Uh, standing long jump and uh, that five ten five shuttle, or maybe it's the L, L drill, right? The three cone, whatever. I hear it called a million different names. Uh, then you want to watch those to see if you're improving or not and have the strength training 
related back to that. And if the strength training, you know, uh, like I, I talk about it in my book and a lot of my velocity lectures, you know, um, there's three, there's two different papers that are out there and I'm working on a third right now that show that improvements in absolute strength alone do not necessarily improve speed and power. Uh, studies came out of Oklahoma State with their football team, Texas A&M with their football team. Both the strength conditioning coaches are listed on the, uh, on the authorship there, so you know that it's not something that's jacked. That for the first year, they saw huge improvements in strength. After that, oh, and uh, they saw huge improvements in power. Years two, three, and four, they saw huge improvements in strength. They did not see improvements in speed and power, indicating that there are other traits that need to be trained. So um, what do you need to do? Well, you need to do whatever it's going to cause that key performance indicator to go up because that's what's going to enhance performance. Uh, it's different for every sport. And honestly, uh, I ran some just uh, whenever I had more time, uh, I messed around with our profile. We had, I've got 16 years worth of data for our football team here. And I remember running some different tests and finding that different positions had different performance indicators. Offensive lineman, it was squat, bench, and standing long jump. Defensive lineman, it was the five uh, – defensive tackle, I believe, was the 5-10-5 shuttle. And uh, the two – and there was something on – oh, it was vertical jump. For uh, the defensive ends and tight ends, it was the three-cone drill and vertical jump. For the receivers, it was the 40-yard dash. And I don't remember anything for the other positions, unfortunately, right now. I could probably go back and dig around somewhere that's like – four computers and two crack computer crashes ago. So hopefully I could find it somewhere. But, uh, you know, it, and it, to say that it was a, a perfect relationship, it was not, but it was definitely, uh, definitely there. Uh, Don't, do you think, um, because for me personally, uh, I had different performance matrix set out uh, that I established pretty early that I knew that if I were able to hit those numbers and do those things in the off season, I was ready to necessarily go back. Exactly. Uh, play football. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, and, and that was pretty, uh, when I would talk to people and they would say, Hey, you know, you ready to go. And I'm like, I'm almost ready. I'll, I'll let you know when I'm ready. And I'm usually always ready right around the 4th of July. And when I can't get ready by the 4th of July, it's probably time for me to retire. And, uh, that seems pretty interesting. And, um, I'm kind of surprised that more teams, uh, you know, whether it be in college and the NFL and whatnot, don't necessarily take that into effect. I mean, they just, you know, Hey, did you pass your conditioning test? Uh, you know, they ask people to come in and do all these kind of serious deals. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting that, you know, you could uh, almost tie and say that these drills are, or the performance in these, uh, these drills or, or this lift or this is most tied to this athlete's performance. I mean, it's, yeah, you know, I'm not surprised that it doesn't happen more often, uh, for a couple of reasons. And one of them is because of the amount of time that we actually, amount of testing periods that we had to have. And that was as a result of our head football coach. Uh, Gary Pinkle was a Don James person, so we ran uh, the same sort of thing where we needed to test in the spring and in the summer on everything but the 40 in the summer, but we tested everything else then. And if we, you know, we had to have uh, certain percentages of uh, you know, PR rates and things like that to you know, prove our worth for our job. Uh, and with, so with as often as we had to test, it was really easily easy to look and say, was this change in performance, was it technique or was it being able to correlate back to these, uh, these variables? So, um, yeah, I don't know if there, you know, any of the other people that came out of the Don James tree, if they stuck with everything like Don James did, like Nick Saban has, they'll be able, I'm not saying they have, 
or they haven't, but they would be able to go back and look at that sort of thing. Did you guys do all, all the mat drills? Yep, sure yeah. did. Yeah, we, uh, um, you know, Don James, uh, you know, when I went to Cal, it was Keith Gilbertson. And, oh, okay. Yeah, so Gilby and, and that staff had come out of Washington. And Got so it. a lot of that, you know, uh, you know, Steve Etman and, and that whole national championship uh, culture of, you know, the mat drills and that whole training thing came down and was big into Cal. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, we definitely did that two days a week uh, in the for five weeks, I believe it was, with the time periods that were set for week one, two, three, four, and five. Yeah. Yeah. All that. Yep. So a lot of um, the transfer training kind of approach that we're teaching, it's coming from uh, Franz Bosch. So uh, just a track track speed coach. Uh, but one of the things he talked about in terms of transfer was uh, the setup. So we approach a lot of, uh, I guess, coaches teaching a toes forward athletic position style squat, right? The knee over the arches, the instep, uh, because that's, the optimal position for force reduction. And then we want our athletes to, to default that onto the field, whether they're playing basketball, whether they're playing lacrosse or football. So in terms of you began your levels with technique, what kind of approach have you taught your kind of sport athletes, or do you suggest to coaches teaching their sport athletes? Cause you yourself are a power lifter, right? But then we're talking about kind of a means to an end training versus the end. Yeah. What, what Tex is ref- referencing is something that, um, you know, I always did in my training and that I noticed that uh, playing offensive line, if my toes were straight ahead, you know, north and south, uh, as I said, I was able to play off my insteps, knees over my insteps, and I was able to create, you know, like a good, mm-hmm. strong, uh, you know, pyramid. And as I said back, as long as I was able to keep that foot in that position, I was strong and stable. And then when I watched guys open their feet up, effectively, they would short step and do what's called stepping in the bucket. And I knew as a tackle and as a guard, as I set vertical, if I could keep that position. Now, uh, I went as far as just taking it into everything. We also found that I was able to change direction much better if my foot was straight ahead opposed from open. So we went to squatting and everything because I figured, you know what, if I'm going to, if this is the position that I want to reinforce, I need to reinforce it in the most stressful situation. You know, I, you know, for me at the, in the off season was lifting weights. And so when uh, I came in and watched, um, a lot of athletes work and especially change direction like the RG3 or whatnot. When you watch their training and you watch the way they squat and they do things, you know, especially with the toes open, duck footed, that was the same position when they went to go, you know, change direction. And all of a sudden he gets a wobble in the knee and he injures himself. And so uh, we've really fought for this toes forward idea in the squatting and people will fight us on this shit left and right. And it just merely came down. I remember when I went out to go uh, visit Louie and train out at Westside, uh, I watched them all squatting with their toes out. And I talked to Louie. I'm like, but aren't you, uh, you know, you've told me for years that uh, guys should squat toes forward. And he's like, well, yeah, they're all too fat. They can't squat toes forward. Their bellies are too big. They got to open it up to get down. But if we have athletes that can do it, we always want a more vertical toe, especially in the powerlifting. So, I mean, it's just kind of something that we've really grasped onto and spend, you know, that idea of being able to activate the glute and be able to use it more so than, you know, pushing the knees out and kind of defaulting. Yeah, no, there's, um, which with the squat and my background in powerlifting, I could tell you what I thought whenever I came in and I could tell you what I think now, and they're actually completely different. And what I thought then was, you know, you should have your feet out wider than their shoulders, your toes as straight ahead as possible to be able to, you know, uh, to be able to get down to depth because of the exact thing that you're talking about. Uh, and you know, everything had to be below parallel. And the more that I've learned and the more that I see things and the more that I've changed my view on things and the more that I've talked with people like, uh, yeah, I've, I've, 
I hit the lottery for being able to have information uh, brought to me uh, through the likes of Anatoly Bondarchuk, Natalia Veroshansky, Hank Kreikanoff, uh, you know, all these different people, and, and Michael Yeses. It, it has really changed the way that I view things. We've got to realize and look at some things about the squat. Everybody looks at a skeleton and they think that everybody's skeleton is going to look like that. Well, we've got a lot of variants. We've got, well, we start out, let's just start most uh, midline and we'll go most lateral and, and distal. The acetabulum, the depth of the hip socket and the shape of the hip socket. And how is the bottom? How wide does that little U notch come out of that thing? Okay. Uh, how shallow is the socket? How much is it antiverted or retroverted? Okay. Meaning how much does it point forward? How much does it point back? Now let's look at the neck. Let's go down to the femoral neck. Well, we could talk about the femoral head because this is why I've had to have a hip replacement and uh, I'm going to have to have another hip surgery in a couple weeks. Is it nice and round or is it more flat? That's going to affect the ability to squat. Femoral neck, what is the angle of inclination? Is it normal is about like this. We've got something called coxa valga that's like this and coxa vera so it's flat instead of being up and angled uh you know what i don't remember the angles of inclination i'd have to i'd have to go look it back up instead of being where you're supposed to be it's flat it's at like 90 degrees and then we have coxa vera which is way up high above what the normal is supposed to be beyond that we've got femoral antiversion and retroversion which is how the femoral neck angle is is it turned forward is it turned back We'll go down the tibia, and of course, we've got tibia to shin links and how that affects squat depth and ability to squat plus the length of the torso. Then we go down to the tibia, and they, sometimes we have something called uh, tibial torsion, right? And it is that um, the basically the way that I look at that, and this isn't technical at all, it's look at the tibial tuberosity and look at the foot, right? If the foot and the tibial tuberosity are in the same line, you're set. If the tubule tuberosity is straight ahead and the foot is turned in or turned out, you know you've got some tibial torsion going on. Okay, and what that would mean is that let's say if I want if I make everybody go with their toe straight ahead, if somebody's got tibial torsion, I'm either internally rotating everything above that or I'm externally rotating everything above that. So uh, you know, just from that carpentry standpoint, there are so many differences that change squat depth right as a power lifter uh you look at the bottom of any of my squats i'm actually posteriorly tilted butt winking essentially even in competition to be able to get to that depth uh why well my femoral head was jacked and i had a, a more shallow socket right i couldn't i couldn't squat like that uh now if the toe position interesting things about the toe position so there's things called a clothes pack which in uh, a loose or open pack position of any of your joints, right? And that typically has to do with how much stability and tightness is there from joint surface and joint capsule. A closed pack position has got all of the tightness and stability that you could want. An open pack or loose pack is just like it sounds. It's a little bit more loose and you get some range of motion. If you've got your toes straight ahead, you're in a closed pack position. If you turn your toes out, you are in an open pack position more up more open pack up in the femoral acetabular joint so you you take take that away so if somebody's got the ability to squat ask the grass with toe straight ahead great 
If somebody doesn't, not a big deal. Because the way that I view the squat is as it, it is a general physical preparedness exercise, it's GPP. Uh, its transfer is limited. It, whenever, what I mean by that is that as you get better in the squat, you get better at the sprints, the jumps, and the sports for a while. But after a while, as your squat improves, you no longer see a transfer. You've got to find other means. Now, you can do other things with the squat. A paper, a, a lot of, you know, being in the NFL, you probably have heard Joe Ken. I'm not sure if he was in the oh, NFL. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. I, yeah, no, I, I heard him speak at um, when we were elite out. FTS. Yeah, Mark, the Elite Mark FTS Boston deal. Yeah. yeah. So, so Joe – Joe was on a paper with a guy named Matt Ray, who is real tight with House, and there was about four or five other authors, and they looked at the uh, transfer of full squats, quarter squats, and half squats on sprints and jumps, and they found that the quarter squat and half squat had a greater transfer than the full squat for highly trained athletes. I'm not saying highly talented because we're looking at Division two and down but highly trained, meaning that they have got several years in the game. Didn't, uh, didn't Verkashansky say the same thing when he was uh, making a differentiation between a GPP, general physical preparedness, full squat, and then a more specific uh, specialty, you know, when he went into like his special movements, specific type training movements where they were doing uh, half squats and quarter squats as a, as a greater transfer to sport for, but he's also talking about Olympic caliber athletes. Right. You're absolutely right. He did. Well, I I mean, but uh, for me, um, and maybe this is just like personal bias, which I need to get around. I have a hard time forcing people into that position or stopping them just because I know for me to quarter squat or half squat hurts the shit out of my knees. (laughs) If anything, like the stretch shortening cycle and the ability to transfer is, is huge. So I always thought about more like the dynamic, like the power cleans, power snatches, and more kind of those, yeah. uh, you know, angles of the hip and the knee and whatnot. And if you think about from an open to a closed position, you know, what you would look at, like if you could look at a quarter squat, half squat, doing those with more form of dynamic pulling was how I attacked that in a better way just because uh, uh, not squatting the parallel and not being able to transition from, um, you know, uh, accentuation and, you know, stretch shortening cycle and everything just put way too much load and actually hurt my knees. So. Yeah, and I can definitely see that. And one of the things that uh, I think a lot of people are, are misconstruing is it's not necessarily max weight on that. You know, it's right. not always about the weight. Some, sure. It's about, you know, popping up and down and getting that quick reversal. Yeah, sure. so the, the second part of um, Franz Bosch's transfer training is internal structure. So external structure set up, internal structure is muscle action. So kind of you want to look actually look at your sport versus just looking at uh, numbers on a spreadsheet. Well, I mean, right. that was kind of how I got to, at least for me, um, uh, some of the, you know, toes forward and the things that we were doing for, you know, squatting and pulling and whatnot was uh, I, you know, noticed that the fastest guys that I played against, especially linebackers, uh, were, you know, slightly internally rotated, slightly pigeon-toed. Uh, hips were actually – or uh, foot position was outside the shoulders. Knees were directly over the toes. And their toes were straight ahead, if not slightly internally rotated. And uh, I always noticed, too, that the fastest guys I played with were all slightly bow-legged, which was uh, another interesting deal. I mean, uh, I remember watching – I played with a guy, uh, John Wayne, and I cannot remember his last name. The dude looked like he literally rode a horse. They called him John Wayne because he was so pigeon-toed and so bow-legged. He was a black dude. And he was by far the fastest dude I've ever seen in my life. Uh, And and I I knew for defense alignment and guys that I played against, the guys that were knock-kneed, and duck-footed were not nearly as explosive as the guys that were slightly bow-legged and pigeon-toed. Yeah. 
and that was just observational, like, like just, you know, when a guy walked up to the line, cause I, you know, you do the ocular pat down as I'm running up to the line, I always looked at the ground and I looked up and I could, you know, you get pretty good at assessing dudes very quickly, you know, and, uh, you know, the guys that were, you know, I mean, and then all of a sudden there would be a, some dude that was so far off the bell curve where I'd look at him and be like, I don't even know what the fuck this guy's going to do. So, um, it just became one of those things where you start noticing traits. And for me, I, I noticed patterns and I just started noticing traits that the faster guys seem to be slightly pigeon toed and uh, bow legged, which makes sense in terms of internal hip torque and the ability to, you know, generate force, I would think in just an anatomical structure. Yeah. It puts the uh, glutes on a pre-stretch. Uh, so then every time that they're making contact, they're hitting, they're, they're hitting a little bit harder. Look at a, uh, like a, a baseball hitter. They're going to dig in and have that quad, that femur already turned in a little bit on that back leg. So whenever they load it to start the swing, it's on a pre-stretch. Yeah. A little bit more power. Yeah, I had an old podiatrist. I mean, uh, we had a Dr. Cohen who was an old podiatrist at the Eagles tell me that um, just observing feet that the guys that had higher arches were always faster than the guys that had flat feet. You know, and, the uh, and that, that actually comes back to the gait cycle, right? Because the uh, pronation – is the force absorption part of the gait cycle. So if somebody's stuck there, okay. So the how your foot works and how it interacts with the ground, right? It starts out as you know your heel strikes and then your foot comes down and it becomes a uh, real loose going into pronation. And uh, doing that, it allows you to absorb force, absorb force of the ground. And then your foot supinates and goes out and turns into a rigid lever. Well, the guys have got high arches, they're stuck in supination. So they, whenever they're hitting the ground, it's a lot more force return. Now that puts them at a greater risk for like stress fractures yes. and stuff like that. Where uh, somebody who has got the flat feet, it's more of a, uh, like a soft tissue type thing. Uh, but, you know, that goes into explaining you know, everything is how the foot interacts with the ground, right? And, you know, people, if anybody wants to overlook the importance of the foot, uh, and the ankle, which is one of the areas that I think that we have really overlooked, and me especially early, you know, throughout my strength and conditioning career, uh, they're they're just missing the boat, man. You your knee doesn't touch the ground, your hip doesn't touch the ground. Well, if it does, that's because you're screwed. Uh, it's your foot that interacts with the ground on a, on every repetition of uh, every sport, but what swimming. And yeah. uh, so you know the foot function and the ankle function. We've got to understand these things. Yeah. And not a lot of people do. We actually include uh, probably about 15, 20 minutes in our, our weekend course on the ankle. Yeah. Ah. Uh, yeah. One of my, my freshman year, I actually broke my ankle, was forced to sit out the entire season, did all the sprints, the squats necessary, but then just naturally neglected the foot. So invested a lot of personal time years after that just to make sure I never did that again. But then well, uh, meet Wellborn, and I, he also yeah, so, invested a lot of time in it. So Dr. Cohen, who is our podiatrist, is was an old-time guy, and he, uh, you know, his father was a podiatrist before him, and so he sits down, and I, I have pretty high arches, and um, he didn't know anything about me. He's like, pretty fast, huh? I was like, yeah, I mean, I ran one of the fast times at the combine, always been pretty fast. And he's like, man, we got to protect these arches. And uh, he goes, you have two choices. Um, he goes, I can make you orthotics. Or I can teach you a set of exercises and you make me a promise that the only time you'll wear shoes is when we're, uh, when you're going to go out on the football field. He's like, other than that, I want you to walk around barefoot. I want you to stretch your feet and I have a whole set of exercises I want you to work on, uh, to strengthen your feet. 
And he goes, if you do that, you'll never have to wear orthotics. You'll never have any foot problems. But he goes, if you're lazy and you want to wear shoes more, they're going to weaken your feet. But he said, for you, especially with high arches, if you do this stuff, you'll be fine. And uh, I was like, I'm cool to not wear shoes. I'm from California. And uh, I'm more than happy to do all these, you know. And so it was stretching the feet, but also doing some, you know, like basic, like, you know, splaying of the toes, trying to pick things up. Uh, you know, like making sure that, you know, as you stretch all the bones in the feet, because I, I mean, what are there like 100 plus, but yeah. also, uh, you know, just being able to constantly stretch and be able to, you know, work on, you know, flexibility and just different factors. And, uh, you know, because of it, I had no foot problems in the NFL and I never had to wear orthotics and still don't. And I think uh, even though I had knee issues, uh, people would always ask me, oh, you have knee issues. And I'm like, yeah, because a dude literally ran his helmet into my knee. And, uh, uh, you know, they'd always ask me about the feet and I'm like, surprisingly, I don't have any foot problems, which is kind of interesting because if you look at kind of uh, different athletes, sometimes people have lower legs, sometimes they have knees and they have hips. And, um, you know, it's just, it's pretty interesting to see where things default on guys. Absolutely. Uh, I wanted to transition into the research side of things. So okay. you moved your career from coaching into, I guess, the laboratory for back. Uh, lack of text. Aren't, aren't you jealous? I, I kind of am. I, just, I can hear you over here. You're like, oh, God. I got a little pep in my voice. But, uh, and Nerd. hearing you speaking at the NCA, <laughs> you, Nerds. you explained your mission, kind of bringing, uh, bringing coaching back into research. So I'd love to uh, have you share your mission with what you're trying to accomplish at the University of Missouri and, and going into all, presenting at all these conferences and seminars. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the things is that, I mean, it's a couple fold and I'll start with this one is that a lot of people think that there's no research that's out there and that everybody's out the research. Usually they're not, they just don't have the right search terms and they don't know about these things called like, you know, PubMed and Google scholar. And uh, I'll tell you that anytime that I thought that I was ahead of the game, if I changed my search term by one word, all of a sudden then I get like 40 things that were, what I thought was brand new had actually been done for 80 years. Uh, and the other side of things is that people complain about no research being done on elite level athletes. And this is strength and conditioning coaches are doing it. It's like, well, why would I do this? A 12 year old does it. Or they were doing that one on 12 year olds. Like, yeah, you know what, dude, you've got the population. They don't, the researchers don't. So if you want, if you're doing something that's interesting, you're doing something that you think is advanced and that works fantastically, you need to hook up with somebody and put that out there. You know, this is the way that we can get uh, buy-in from the, the coaches is that uh, we need to be out there doing research. We need to gain legitimacy as a profession. You know, right now to be a college strength and conditioning coach, you don't have to have anything, Right. Uh, you have to have a college degree is required by most universities. I do not believe that's an NCAA requirement. That is just a university requirement to work, uh, you know, in higher education. Uh, and then you don't have to have a master's. There's plenty of people on staff that uh, oh, I like work with this. Oh, I, I thought you had to have a master's to well, be a college. recommended to apply. Or actually, you got to have a master's to get an internship. It's <laughs> a bad joke. Sorry. Yeah. Now, the... Uh, you, know, you don't have to have a master's, but that's the way that typically people get into it because they started out as a graduate assistant, worked up the chain. Sure. So they got a master's as a, a function of being in it. Uh, and then the certification, uh, I mean, shoot, the, we saw that whole thing out at Oregon and that the uh, individual uh, had a, a cross country, uh, track and cross country, like a high school track and cross country certification. 
So, you know, there, there isn't any, anything, uh, you know, any mandated guidelines from the NCAA on what they have to have. Well, we need to do things to prove that we are professionals. So, and what do professionals do? Well, you look at physical therapy, you look at athletic training, they try different uh, interventions and then they publish. Did it work? Did it not? So I think that's one of the steps into it. And then eventually, if we want to actually truly have legitimacy, there's going to have to be licensure. Um, because until there's licensure, uh, you know, the head coach can just go hire uh, his buddy that he went to high school with that liked to lift weights back then, you know, and doesn't know anything about sickle cell anemia, uh, cerebral meningitis, any of the orthopedic or medical issues that could go into causing serious problems for the athletes. Uh, but, you know, I, coaches then they typically think, well, I don't have anybody who can help me. Well, one, most college coaches are at a college and there's these things, people called professors that work there. And uh, they've got to do this thing called research to be able to keep their jobs or because they enjoy it. And if you find anybody that, you know, if there is statistics uh, by, you know, in engineering or whatever, a professor that has an interest in sport, dude, you're set, man. You're set. And if they don't know somebody, have them contact somebody like me or Andy Fry or Jerry Mayhew or somebody that if we don't have time to do it, we probably know somebody if they're not at their university, they're at the next university over. Uh, for instance, a guy that's on my uh, special interest group on my executive committee is at uh, Transylvania University. Well, they don't have any physical education, kinesiology, anything like that. But uh, seven miles away at Eastern Kentucky, a good friend of mine uh, is there, and I've got those two hooked up, and they're working on some projects together and exploring the different interventions that they've done. So, you know, there's people that are out there and that are willing. We've just got to have the coach. We've got to get both people at the table. That's it. We've got to get both sides of the same table. Some coaches don't give a shit about research, and that's fine. Okay? If this is the way that I've always done it. This is the way that I'm always going to do it. Great. You know what? You don't need to be at the table. But the people that want to make a difference, let's get them at the table. Let's get the researchers at the table, and let's go. Uh, as a result of this, with the, uh, the, you know, you were at the first uh, derivation of this, where you know we showed the latest applicable research that could somebody could go and implement in their weight room the next yep. day. Uh, and we'll be doing that. Knock on wood, we'll be doing that every coaches conference. We're also, uh, as a, a function of the special interest group, we're going out and getting the researchers that have published research on athletes and giving them a, uh, and giving the practitioners an opportunity to ask them questions through a Facebook Live thing on the, uh, on the special interest group's uh, page. We had Andy Galpin, and I can't remember who's next. I want to say we're looking at trying to get Mike Zordos of Ford Atlantic. Uh, who's done a lot of stuff on undulating periodization and RPE and velocity uh, with power lifters and, and some athletes as well. So, you know, we're, we're trying to get everybody, the right people on the bus and, and get it going because uh, this divide that exists, this chasm that exists between the two uh, professions within the field is, it's ludicrous. We need to, you know, let, let's bridge the gap as uh, the, recent uh, motto of the NSCA has become, and let's get, uh, let's get this done. Let's get it done right. Let's find out what works. Yeah, it was great in your introduction to um, just drop one, two, three, four immediate takeaways. 
that are science-based that coaches could apply on Monday after the conference. Um, in order to help with that, how can coaches read research papers or studies and really kind of find takeaways? Do you have any suggestions to kind of help their lens that they're looking through? Yeah, you know, uh, there's a few things. First is, of course, read the abstract and then don't stop there. Go to the methods, right? See who was the subject population that was done. Uh, look at the pictures. You know, that, if it's a book, I'm going to be reading pictures or reading pictures. <laughs> Shows my Oklahoma education there, right there, huh? I'll be looking Pretty at good. the pictures. Yeah. Yeah. If, it, if the book doesn't have pictures, I'm probably not going to be reading them. Uh, but, you know, you'll look and you'll get a lot of information out of just simply the pictures. Like uh, I've looked at some papers that were looking at prediction of 1RM on a bench press, right? And how do they do it? On a Smith machine with the feet in the air. But it didn't say that anywhere in the paper, wow. but it showed it in the picture. So you want to look at the methods, what was done, how was the protocol done, uh, what was the population that was used, and that'll give you a lot more information. Uh, then if you'll go back, you'll see the – you look at the uh, conclusions – they kind of relate what they found as to what everybody else has found. And then, uh, and that's within the conclusions and discussion. Um, and that's, uh, that's how I'd recommend for people to look at it because it, it, you've got to know who was it actually done on and what did they actually do and what did they actually find. So, uh, you know, interesting take off of that. We were talking about, uh, uh, you are talking about increasing the type 2 fibers earlier, uh, way earlier in the discussion. There was a paper on velocity loss, a 20 versus 40% velocity loss that was out. And they were just looking at uh, strength gains and, and uh, changes in vertical jump in 10 time, uh, 10 meter sprint time. And whenever I was looking at it, uh, I looked at the, they happened to post something about the fiber type and how that changed over the course of the, the uh, training block. And the lower velocity loss actually had a decrease in type 1 cross-sectional area and an increase in type 2 cross-sectional area. What is this? This is selective hypertrophy. They selectively, you could use training with uh, lower velocity losses, so like a 90% or 80% instead of going all the way out to fatigue, to cause your type 2 fibers to hypertrophy and your type 1 to, to not or to not of the, to the same extent. And whenever we think about this, uh, you know, I'm old enough to know who Warner Gunther was, and I've watched a lot of the videos online. What did Warner Gunther, what did his training look like? Everything was explosive. Everything was explosive. Including his hair. Yeah, including his hair, yeah. He had a great mullet and a great mustache. Mullet and the gear in the game. Yeah. But, you know, uh, something that a lot of people don't realize is that there was a 2003 paper that Warner Gunther uh, was on uh, and it looked at the, uh, the, uh, the uh, morphological profile, the muscle fiber typing of two different world champions shot putters, him and somebody else. He had less than 40% of type 2 fibers. Less than 40%. you know who normally has uh, over 60% type 1 fibers? Cross-country runners. This person who had the fiber type makeup of a cross country runner had selective hypertrophy enough to where his type two fibers that were only less than 40% cross of uh, number, the cross sectional area was close to 70%. Wow. So he, through his training, he was able to blow those type two fibers up and utilize them. 
Now, three to five years after he was done competing, he went back down to, I think it was 37%, which was the original number of number in 37% cross-sectional area as well of the type two fiber whenever he wasn't training. Maybe so. had a change in supplementation. <laughs> well, you I mean, know, that, yeah, yeah, we, we can't, uh, I, I don't think that was disclosed because I think some records might've, you know, or uh, champion. Well, I right? mean, a lot of guys go train in the Cayman Islands. <laughs> well, I mean, season. It's a good place. Uh, you know, I, I think I remember uh, reading something a long time ago uh, uh, that was talking about like computerol, for example, was, um, uh, you know, in some like rat study or something, they were using computerol to, uh, you know, convert, uh, you know, fiber types. And, um, you know, so I'm sure there is a pharmaceutical approach to probably enhancing fiber type. So unfortunately, oh, no, you probably I, can't test that. I, I'm, I'm sure it is. Yeah. The IRB, I guarantee you will not approve that. <laughs> if it does, I'm going to sign up for that study of my own. You know? <laughs> you're, you're like, give me everything you got. And gamma radiation. Underground, underground <laughs> testing is what we know. Well, I mean, what uh, was pretty fascinating, and you know this from dealing with the West Side guys, uh, Louis's street knowledge in terms of that stuff is like, yeah. I, you know, and I'm sure it's some, at some point somebody's like, man, we should, we need to go download all this stuff out of his brain because uh, he's going to pass away and take like a wealth of knowledge of pushing the bounds of what is humanly possible. Um, right. Yeah. He's also been testing on apes for the last two decades. <laughs> you have to remember we're risen apes, not fallen angels. Gotcha, that's right. As we were on the podcast yesterday or the day before. But uh, no, it's – so, I mean, you think about it. I mean, form follows function. If you, you know, design the training model correctly, you can, you know, use the said principle to, to drive what we're looking for. I want, I want more than if. I want people to understand how to design the model to drive the adaptation. Well – Yes, but you have to remember as he's, you know, if we could sum up this entire talk into one statement is that you as the individual have to figure out how to pull that from each individual athlete because everybody's different. Um, you know, we can go test, uh, you know, you know, velocity based training and I'd be interested to see if you were to take, let's say, 100 people and get them to train within the same velocity if that they would drive the same adaptation. You know, I, there's going to be some carryover that works for everyone. Right. And sure. then there's a percentage of well, individuality. I mean, that's, that that's the bell curve. Yeah. I mean, so right there. yeah, there's going to be a bell curve. I mean, just like, you know, the, the Gunther guy, uh, you know, with a, you know, a massive amount of slow twitch muscle fiber, but the guy found a training method that allowed him to compete at a high level. Right. Now, if tons of bounding, tons of, Submaximal well, throwing things as but, fast as he can. But think about this: probably because he had a lot of type one fibers, he was able to handle a shit ton of volume it's and load. True, right? You know, which, which is what Not we found hurt. is that yeah, I mean, guys who are extremely fast twitch, like um, you know, and I I made this observation um, watching quarterbacks that we played with. Uh, some guys like a Tom Brady. There's a little dude whose entire job he is a clicker, and he counts every throw that Tom Brady makes. And when Tom Brady gets done with his volume, he's done for the day. I played with other guys that was like half that volume. And I played with other dudes that they just let him throw as much as he wanted. And the more he threw, the better he got. Hmm. And like, and like we, you know, we, we talk about this thing called big monkey versus small monkey, that there's people that can handle a shit ton of volume and they get better. And then there's people that can not handle the volume that have to, you know, work within a, a you know, a more intensity based deal. And the interesting part is football, for example, naturally selects for the big monkey because just to get to the point of the NFL, the amount of fucking work that you have to do. Uh, and and I, I remember in college, I played with a dude who um, was a really good offensive lineman, came in as an 18 year old kid and had benched 400 pounds, which was fucking unheard of. And every day he was at college, he got weaker. 
And I remember he barely benched 300 by a senior and my strength coach like belittled him like a motherfucker. And I remember like his, he was my roommate and I was like, dude, what happened? He's like, dude, it's too much fucking work. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, I lifted weights two days a week and I benched 400 pounds. Now we got to train six days a week and I'm getting fucking weaker. He's like, it's too much. And I remember being like, shut the fuck up, you pussy. You know, <laughs> you just don't want it enough, you know? And now after all this deal, I look back and think, what's the effective dose to, to result in the maximal performance? For him, it was two days a week. Other people, you know, can train, you know, 27 times in a week, which is kind of what we see the CrossFit where, you know, hey, Rich Froning trains, you know, 14 times a day and he's, he's in phenomenal shape. And then other people are like, what's Rich doing? And they do it and they end up with adrenal fatigue yeah. in the fucking hospital. He's outside of the bill curve. Well, he is. And, and, but it's, you have to think that certain sports will naturally select for that type of person. But the problem becomes uh, you have to know as an athlete what your wheelhouse is. I mean, I knew playing football, I knew exactly what my wheelhouse was. Um, you know, we, we were talking about on the podcast yesterday. I remember going and watching film with my coach. And I remember after about an hour, I finally was like, do you have any dudes that are like six foot five white guys that I can watch? He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, you're showing me six foot eight Trey Thomas, who's 365 pounds. I'm like, I'm a six foot five white dude. Find me six foot five white guys. So he showed me like Jim Lachey and Gary Zimmerman and all these guys that were more similar to me. And I, I was watching and I was like, I can do that. I will do that. And I did it and I was fine. But like that part of like knowing who you are. And I think the big part of the training experience is learning who you are and what you can and can't do and what works for you and what doesn't. And then having somebody like a Brian Mann or, you know, Tex McQuilkin and probably not you nope. <laughs> uh, guide you on the path where like, you know, here's a dose of reality and this is what you need to do. And the thing that I really actually, I'm going to go back on a page that Brian laid out where he talked about, uh, you know, technique, base level, absolute, and then specific with velocity. Um, I think where people fuck up is they, uh, they really get out of the groove in these things and they're not having somebody point it in their face and being like, all right, are you ready to, to advance to the next point? And, um, you know, that's something that I've been beating on for almost the last decade is like, know yourself as a training. And if you've trained enough, like, uh, T nation asked me to write an article for him and I pretty much like couldn't do it. I just couldn't fucking horn myself to it, which was, uh, <laughs> how do you know you're a beginner? And it was one sentence. If you're reading this, you're a beginner. Yeah, are, are you looking for information? Yeah if, if, <laughs> yeah, if you're waiting for me to tell me you're a beginner, you're a beginner because, uh, and, and there's a weird thing, and you know this with, with lifters, right? When you're a beginner, you don't know anything, so then you listen to somebody, and then you get to the point where you think you know everything, and then finally you get to the point where you realize that you really don't know anything and that you have to reach out to really intelligent people to hopefully mentor and guide you through this. So I remember I got to this point where I didn't know anything. I fucking thought I knew everything. And then I realized I didn't know anything and I needed to reach out right. and, and like find people that weren't, you know, like, you know, that were smarter than me that could help me design this shit. The scary are the people who never leave the second stage. Well, I, it's because, um, yeah, they're on the internet and, uh, you know, they're the guys with, you know, 10,000 posts on some obscure forum, you know, big bulky and tan <laughs> and, uh, you know, Hey bro, you just need to do this. And, you know, and that effectively, uh, you know, but what's killer too, especially you know, where we're living is this idea of performance-based training. And unfortunately, 90% of the world isn't focused on performance-based training. What are they composed, uh, you know, focused on? Aesthetics. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't give a shit about being strong, explosive or being athletic. I just want to look strong, explosive and athletic. I'm trying to look good naked. Yeah. And, and like, to me, like, um, that's, you know, that's a function of like caloric deficit, yeah, aerobic works. work, 
and doing, you know, sets of five to 12 reps with, you know, 60 to 90 seconds rest four to six days a week. (laughs) Yeah. And, and I'm sure if we asked Brian, he could fucking send us that program and he would probably like fucking throw up as he sent it because that's not what you geek on. You're not trying to get people ready for figure shows, you know, and you know, you're trying to look at say, Hey dude, here's elite human performance. I want to work with the world's best athletes and try to make them just one or two or 3% better. And how do I work with that? And, uh, that's where we all want to live. And unfortunately that is such a small section that you looked at and said, shit, man, I want to do research and I want to get there. And it's fucking awesome. So Brian, did you have a, did you have an approach when you were coaching athletes to identify a big versus a little monkey or somebody's having an off day? Did you use the vertical jump in training? I know uh, John. No, I didn't. What I had found was that if I tried to do the same thing every week, or every day, they just got bored and they wouldn't do it. Uh, but, you know, if you want to talk about big monkey, small monkey, like a, a one-time thing, yeah, I did. I, I took their power off of the uh, vertical jump, and I did uh, basically I, I allometrically scaled it so that we would have everybody on the same thing. Uh, and allometrically scaling is body weight to the 0.67 power, and that essentially, you know, John's skeleton is going to take up more of his mass than, than yours because he's bigger. Uh, you know, taller and he's, you know, the, the skeletal mass is not, and I'm well, not a hobbit. Well, I am in the 96 percentile for bone density, but you're a hobbit. What does that mean? You're, um, <laughs> I got big bones. Yeah. Right. See, well, what's interesting is everybody like, uh, I'm, I, I realized the other day that all you guys are under six feet tall, which is, is hilarious. I well, didn't, I, a doctor man was talking. Let's I didn't even to, date girls that were under six feet tall for a couple of years, let alone have people work for me under six feet tall. So then I allometrically scaled it, and then I uh, did Z-scores from there. Uh, and then that's how basically we uh, we could tell that – I wouldn't say big monkey, small monkey, but what it really did was uh, – you know, interesting retroactively looking at this uh, with our, our data. All the guys that were over three standard deviations above uh, on their power, right, whenever they came in as a freshman, if they were three standard deviations over their allometrically scaled power, uh, those guys typically, uh, whenever we push the strength hard in that, you know, in those earlier levels, they actually got slower and their jumps went down. Yeah, it was just that they were a, a different animal, a different breed. Uh, and uh, so looking at stuff like that on the initial evaluations, I think I would probably change the way that I approach the training of those athletes and have a lot more power-based stuff right off the bat. But uh I just got a text that my daughter is uh, very, very sick. So I'm mm. going to, uh, to, uh, go please. Yeah. yeah, we yeah can, no. Uh, no, that's a great place to end. Um, yeah. doc, thank you so much for uh, taking the time, uh, to not only educate us and, um, uh, you know, selfishly, I'd like to try to book another one of these and, uh, Absolutely. a little farther down and, um, you know, it was, it was awesome to connect and, um, I really just appreciate you taking the time and, uh, Dude, stoked to meet you and, um, you know, follow your work. So, uh, and quickly, I know you, you've got a, a massive speaking schedule. How can people, where do they go to find out your schedule? How can they get in touch with you or follow you? Well, that's a damn good question. I need to, everybody is on me about getting a website up, but I just don't know how to do it. I, uh, you want to know how to get a bigger bench. I know how to do that, but, uh, website, I've got no idea. So I'm pretty um, sure there's somebody listening to this right now that could probably help Dr. Brian Mann build a I, website. I could put him in contact with people. Well, I appreciate yeah, that. but they're usually strippers in New Orleans, and he yeah. Well, they you know. work with the web too. They know coding. Got <laughs> <laughs> to earn a living, John. They're artists. I, I can't have my name on Pornhub. I'm just saying. Well, do you I want mean, we the could. hits or not? <laughs> <laughs> How much traffic do you want? Uh, but uh, yeah, I've got uh, yeah. In July, I'm going to be at the Okanagan, and then the following week, I'm at uh, the national conference. The following week, at Seabasps. 
uh, August, nothing. September, maybe something. Uh, October, the leaders course for the NSCA. November, I'm down in Australia uh, at their national conference and then two velocity workshops. December in Pittsburgh at Todd Hammer's thing. Then January, it all starts all over again with uh, Coach's Conference. Uh, you going to make it down to uh, Texas anytime soon? Hey, you, have, you host the conference down there, and I'll go see my sister. So, you know, okay. we'll, we'll, we'll get her done. We have a conference in uh, December that I would like to invite you to, and I'll send you an invite if you can make it. I uh, would love good. for you to attend or present, I mean, whenever you want. I'd yeah. Just to be able to, to hang out and get some uh, FaceTime, but also, you know, if we could get you on there, I'd love to hear you speak. As long as it's not the same weekend as Todd Hammers, we can probably pull it off. Okay. Uh, I think it's the second weekend in December. That's when it is. Of course. Yeah. Damn it. So, yeah. All right. Well, we'll have to go kill him. So don't worry about that. <laughs> well, cool. Right. Well, thank you. We'll work right, on that. Yes. So, yes, sir. We appreciate your time and we'll be in touch. Thank you. Sounds Bye. good. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Dr. Brian Mann is obviously a busy man. Even without a website, you can creep on him on Instagram or Twitter under the same handle, at jbryanmann. Brian writes regularly for Elite FTS and is author of several books, including The Complete Guide to Powerlifting for Human Kinetics, which, if I had kids, sounds like a great uh, bedtime story. And ahoy hoy, do not forget the Power Athlete Symposium is popping off December 8th through the 10th. If you'd like to get tickets to attend the event, be sure to check out powerathletehq.com and go to the events tab. Until next time, bye!